0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's
1: edition of the Systematic Investor Series Will Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Karstblasen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rule-based investor. And for long-term listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you are new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Moritz, good afternoon, how are you doing? Good afternoon, Niels, I'm doing really well. How are you? Great to hear, yes, um, obviously, um, staying at home in quarantine, so to speak, not, not because we have any illnesses, but because we have to here in Switzerland, so uh, we are complying the best we can, and um, yeah, so it's a, a different a different work life at the moment but uh, i think everyone is coping well now i'm sure our you know conversation today certainly initially will will be influenced by the events caused by the spread of uh, covid 19 and and where only within the last couple of days the us have now surpassed china and italy in the terms of number of confirmed cases Um, the fact that the virus is now beginning to hit uh, the us really hard i think personally is important for the overall state of the world markets as they tend to take the lead from the U.S. And, you know, in my little roundup, uh, it kind of leads me to focus a little bit on the response we saw from the Fed this week. Uh, I think Monday, was it? Monday morning, U.S. time. Uh, A lot of us follow, of course, the daily massive swings we're now seeing in world equity markets. But, you know, and I'm sure the Fed is doing too, but... I think actually Jerome Powell and his friends are paying even more attention to to the credit market. So on Monday, the Fed essentially launched Q e affinity uh, and um, announced that they would be buying a total of one hundred and twenty five billion dollars worth of treasuries and MBS every single day and compared that to, I think uh, when we were at the highest, more or less uh, uh, you know, in the old crisis um of Q e. We, they were only, quote-unquote, only uh, buying about 80 billion or so per month. So this week, actually, we saw what they now call the Reserve Bank Credit, which is the sum of, of all the Fed's uh, interest-bearing assets. That went straight up to, uh, you know, 4.97 trillion. That's up by half a trillion in a week. So, um, I mean, if they keep at this pace... Um, the about 47 trillion dollars there, I think there is an in, in terms of outstanding uh, treasuries or maybe even including some of the other um, uh, bonds in the US, um, you know, it won't take them long to buy all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, essentially we could see the Fed end up in a situation like the BOJ uh, where they simply buy most of the bonds and then they buy the ETFs and then they buy the stocks outright, who knows? But anyways... These numbers are impossible to fully comprehend. And I think the consequences, and perhaps more importantly, the unintended consequences of this policy is even harder to imagine what that can lead to. And of course, if that wasn't enough, we also have the government bailouts around the globe that get bigger by the day. So perhaps, and that's really the point I'm trying to build up to, perhaps uh, it's not completely... Coincidental that yesterday we saw the rating agency Fitch come out and while they were affirming the US AAA rating of U, of sovereign credit, they did offer the following words of caution. The risk of near-term negative rating action has risen given the magnitude of the shock of the economy and public finances from the coronavirus and the commensurate and necessary fiscal policy response, particularly in the absence of a credible consolidation plan for the country's pre-existing long-term public finance and government debt challenges. And my point to all of this is I think that, you know, at this point when we're going through a period like this, having a boldly-sized allocation to a strategy like trend-following you know, which is based on the philosophy: knowing what you don't know makes a whole lot of sense. That was my two cents. Great intro. We're going to talk about the markets. I'm I'm puzzled to uh, hear what you what caught your attention because there are so much that you know, so much action going on at the moment. So you know, I want to know what what you thought was um, the uh, the most interesting, both from a kind of a market move point of view, where we saw some you know, big reversals and and stuff like that. Um, But of course, also from a performance point of view, that's always interesting. But I just think that, you know, maybe we have to sometimes broaden our our frame a little bit to think about, you know, where this is all heading and what that may mean for markets and therefore for the strategy that we, um, you know, are so passionate about and have been preaching about for decades, right?
2: Yeah, I'm... Very, very happy to be, uh, I mean, I always am happy to be a trend following trader, but I'm very happy to have that portfolio at that point in time. Um, So this past week, we've seen a massive, absolutely massively quick relief rally in equities. I think the American markets American equity markets have increased 14-15% or something like that the DAX is up more than 10%. I
1: guess all of the equity index markets are Well I think you can almost double that more it's actually I think they it. were up like more than 20% from the oh, lows. More, yeah. Okay so yeah. more
2: than 20 yeah. some people call that at the start of a new bull market. That's right. And so okay, so let's step back a little. Um, we don't know. Maybe this becomes a new bull market, and something crazy happens, and we're making new all-time highs in equities. But at the same point, um, you know, remember that those relief rallies—they are kind of like the norm after massive, speedy crashes, as we have seen in the past couple of weeks. You know, it bounces back, and very often it then you know, stabilizes there and reverses again to the downside and makes new lows. This is something that could happen. We don't know. We don't have the crystal ball. But with with my trend-folding system, the way we're positioned, you know, still short the equity indices, uh, long some of the bonds, uh, long the dollar, long gold, short crude, short all of the energies, really. Um, so that is a a portfolio that I like. And I, you know... We may have a very good April and a very good uh, May and June ahead of us, who knows? But um, to follow that system right now makes a lot of sense to me, even though this past week has been a losing week for me. I think I lost close to 4%. Um, Well, why? Because all those positions have reversed, like you were alluding to, right? I mean, we were short the equities, um, they all moved up, so that that was a problem, it caused losses. Um, You know, being long the dollar, didn't really work, um, um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, still up a bit more than a percent year to date. And when I look at my performance year to date, and you know how that has played out on, on 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 a daily basis, and I compare that to the overall market, ah, very happy with my system.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned, of course, some of the the, the big market moves. Um, I mean, uh, just looking at at the screen here. I mean, you had. Markets like Palladium up 40% uh, this week. Uh, platinum almost 20%. Silver almost 20%. The Dow, uh, yeah, actually it was on a weak basis. It was up about 13%. And then the VIX, of course, uh, as as reliefs comes to the markets, it was down 13%. So big swings for sure. Um, like on your side, I mean, our our week was pretty quiet. I mean, you know, it's been pretty... Uh, "Quote unquote," uneventful when it comes to performance, uh, and certainly in ter- when it comes to to volatility in in our performance, um, down fractionally for the week, up well for the month. Um, um, but it was really the currencies for us this week—the uh, the the, the uh, weakening of the dollar—that's where uh, we lost the money. Um, but we made money in fixed income, like you said. Um, probably we were flat overall in equities, um, because we have very small positions uh, due to the high volatility. And uh, yeah, keep doing okay in in the volatility space, which we trade uh, a little bit. That's been a a really great uh, area for the portfolio this month, which is, of course, why we decided to include it a number of years back, because when when things like this happen, then that's a great uh, market or, or area to be in. So overall very uh, control volatility and i think that that's the other part of of uh, something that i do think is important because often when people look at trend followers um and to compare and who should i pick and all of that i think a lot of the discussion goes towards the models the the signals so how do you get in how do you get out and and we spend a lot of time on that but i think sometimes the the unsung hero of all of this is really the risk management how do you how do you cope through these, um, you know, periods? So I think that's important as well. And, and this is certainly, we'll see what the numbers show later this week and next week when we're on. Moritz, there will be some, some interesting things to talk about, I'm sure. Um, and, um, and, and I think a large part of that, there's a couple of things that will determine uh, performance in a month like that. One will be the markets you trade. One will be the speed you trade with. Um, But another thing will be definitely the risk management framework that you uh, apply. And I also think that um, you probably picked up uh, some interesting information that we can talk about before we jump into tweets and and, and questions and all of that. Um, Because I think there's a lot of... I mean, what's interesting to me is that we build these models. We tell people that we build these systems and we do it by looking at historical data. We then test it. And once we, you know, once we feel we have something that's robust um, and comfortable with, you know, that's what we trade and, and you've done it for many, many years. We've done it for 45 years, but none of us have anything like this in our data set, right? So so, when we, so, so, it's important to understand that when you build models like this, it's not like every single possible outcome is in the data. So, you know roughly how things are going to react there's always something new you know as Jerry often say you know it you know it's always different and that is true i mean this is definitely different from what we've seen before and i think that's really i mean i think that's a testament to the philosophy of trend following and to how we construct the portfolios how we think about uh, managing risk and all of that stuff um, and um, I, as far as I can tell, even though it may not be that the industry as a whole is coming out with positive numbers, I, I have a feeling they might be around flat, uh, but there will be certain managers coming out with good returns and and um, and I think they, they should be really proud of of having been able to to construct something and stick to it, Um, that is actually robust enough to handle something as unprecedented as this really is.
2: Look, I think there has been some, you know, some people had some real panic probably a week ago when markets were selling off one day after the next. Uh, If you have a flat month in March or slightly up, then I think that's good. That's definitely good enough for me. And risk management, like you say, is so important. I mean, we have it as part of our systematic trading process, right? The way we determine position sizes at the start of a trade um, or the way position sizes are managed. And I think in in your case, Niels, throughout the trade as a function of risk uh, of the portfolio, all of that is rules-based and there's no discretion. Every once in a while, and I've said it uh, probably six or seven weeks ago, when you know, I said, okay. So there's a little bit of an intervention going on when I reduced the long bond positions that I had. Remember that? It's probably five weeks ago or something like that. Sure. And I took sure. some of those long bond uh, positions down a bit um, because you know they were just they were they were moving so quickly to the top side. Um, now it turns out that was a good a good thing to do because I kind of like picked the top on that uh, with the benefit of hindsight. But you know, oftentimes this is also. I don't know whether that would have been the right thing to do. I just did that from a risk point of view. Didn't want to have that much open risk in those markets. Um, But other than that, it is completely mechanical. And I think this is important, especially when those markets are so volatile. Because volatile markets means that if you have to do things manually, you're probably going to be stressed out. It's going to impact you. You're going to be... Attached to your PL, looking at the screens, all of that. Um, and you may not be able to really make the right decisions. Uh, with right, I mean the rational, uh, correct decisions at that point in time. And it's so much better to have a game plan, which is a system. You have to be able to stick to that system. That is easier said than done. But just, you know, succumb to the system, put those trades on. If you get risk management signals, well, put them on and move on to the next day. But this has been extremely robust. I think it's a very defensive way uh, with our trend-following strategies. And the result is that we are maneuvering those markets uh, tremendously better than you know the long-only crowd, be it bonds or equities, or some of those risk parity people, or the, the the risk premium factor guys. I mean, some of those, from what I've seen, they got absolutely smoked i think they're out of business you know i've seen track records the last couple of weeks where you know you have all those funds um being short vol short skew short gamma long dividends you know all that taily type of stuff where they're warehousing risk which has worked so well mean reversion you know all of that has worked so well uh for many many years Given the market environment that we had, with you know, interest rates decreasing all the time, equity markets being very involatile, moving smoothly to the upside with very, very high shop ratios. So all those strategies have worked. And some of those funds were trading at you know five, six, seven percent realized volatility. And this is what they have told their clients, you know, and clients loved it. Here's a product that has five, six, seven percent vol. So that's really easy to cope with, right? And it makes the shop ratio of greater than one. And there's this clever manager, you know, trading in the derivative markets and, you know, selling cross-asset volatility and all that. And this is working so well. So here's the drawdown. On a product with five, six, seven vol, those guys are down 40%. Four zero. This is is the titanic moment, right? You're not... (laughs) It, with those type of you know, if if you're trading a twenty vol trend following system, yeah, you'll be down forty percent. That can happen in a month, no problem, right? It's it's part of the sample. But if you run a five percent vol portfolio, you're not supposed to be down forty. That's
1: game over. And I would add a couple of things to that. Uh, More, um, you know, you mentioned risk parity. Well, risk parity wasn't really made famous until around two thousand and three by Bridgewater and of course they've been through one crisis and there are you know obviously a bunch of clever people but i think you've got some updates in terms of how they've been coping through this crisis right but but my real point is a lot of these tra- strategies that you mention they've all come out to the market and people have bought them in spades in the last 10 12 years where everything has just been fine and so they have not had any of these real life tests which is why we often say that you know, you can't backtest experience. I mean, you can't, you know, you don't know what to do necessarily when you go through these crises, but people have been doing it for a long time. And certainly on the trend following side, you'll find a number of firms that have been been around for 30, 40 years, and um, and that experience is really uh, valuable. The other thing, and I do want to go into some of the some of the things you picked up on um, uh, this week. But before, I forgot actually to say that the interesting part about our performance this week is, I think, that the best performing market was Lean Hawks, right? And it just shows you the breadth of a diversified portfolio. Um, you know, all the action, despite the fact that we. You know, we watch the equities and the bonds uh, and and gold and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, um, trading up and down in massive um, in massive moves. But you know, having having many more strings to play on is super important uh, during these times. And also, I think we talked about a few weeks back why. You know, when you go through a crisis, if you were trading just a small set of markets like fixed income, like equities, maybe even the currencies, could even be gold actually, but where you think you're diversified but you don't have all the other commodities with you, actually what happens certainly in a portfolio approach that we would have is that all these markets get so correlated or the correlations, normal relationships breaks down that we would have to shrink the risk dramatically. And therefore, we couldn't actually make a lot of money necessarily from it. But when you have a fully broad portfolio, and this is a research paper that that I came across uh, only a couple of months ago, the fully diversified portfolios tend to do better because of the low or non-correlated markets you have in the portfolio. It allows you to actually have a little bit more exposure in the portfolio overall so that you can produce uh, returns um if, of course, if you're on the right side of the of the trends. But, uh, I mean, this is really, an, I mean, I think this is a period that we're going to be talking about for a long time. And I think lessons are being learned every single day. Um, and let's not forget, a lot of the people sitting making these decisions, whether it's on the allocator side, whether it's the dealers in the trading rooms or at home now with the coronavirus, a lot of them have never experienced even the last crisis we had and so as you said how are you personally going to react to this um you know what's the emotional impact of going some uh, going through something like this i don't think it's to be underestimated um that's for sure and uh, i can't imagine having to um you know be an investor without any kind of rules set to stick to um that that that's going to be it's going to be tough
2: yeah um Interestingly, best position for me this week, like you, short hogs. Same thing. <laughs> so uh, that's been a good
1: yeah. market to have. Great minds think alike, as they say. E- exactly right. Or great systems, I should say. Great Maybe. That's the...
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the trend following guys probably they're all short lean hogs, and sure. uh, you know we're we're short the energy, so that's uh, that's all fine. But I mean, to your point, we, you know, we've seen quite some interesting news about other funds as well some brand name funds you know two Sigma Renaissance D Shaw Bridgewater you know kind of like the stalwarts of uh, of the industry Um, and they're not immune to all of this you know they have had um, you know some of their worst losses or worst weeks apparently I don't know the exact numbers so I'm only picking this up and repeating it from what I picked up in say you know the Financial Times or the Journal Um, but you know they have suffered and uh probably more than the average trend following trader pure trend following trader so this is this i found interesting because we don't know that we don't normally hear numbers of that magnitude from them normally those type of firms they're kind of like you know up almost all of the time um but but so this this was a surprise and the other thing i want to mention with markets is um when when I looked at some of those markets, uh, I could see that really there's some, uh, well, when I say I could see, my hunch is that there's some massive unwinding going on in some of those markets. Liquidity disappearing. Many of those markets that I look at, and you know, this is not kind of like the first row type of markets, but maybe kind of like second row type of markets, such as, you know, Orange juice and you know contracts like this, which you know the very large CTA's wouldn't even trade because they would be too large for those markets. But liquidity just going going away. Liquidity even in the order book of the S and P five hundred has been really really bad. Not this week, but especially the week before that. All right. Um, probably a lot of those you know high frequency trading firms taking away their positions going out of the order books because they don't want the risk because the markets are moving too fast. And I could see some unwinding going on in in all those like uh, markets which I think have been um, have been traded by those QIS type of strategies. This is what you mentioned Niels, you cannot backtest the experience. Like there's all those smart beta factor driven risk premium type of strategies that came up in the past 10, 11, 12 years. Those strategies have never really, they've been backtested throughout crises in the past, but maybe curve fits so that they look good for that. They've never had a real life crisis, right? This is now the first time this has happened. And kind of like, it doesn't really matter where I look, uh, they all don't look good everything has been kind of like short vol or implicitly short vol if not explicitly then implicitly short vol because of the way they rebalance their leverage their vol control their risk parity this that and the other thing and they all do not work everything that has had an exposure to kind of like warehousing risk be that by being long dividends or being short vol has impacted markets massively and you could really see this i you know took the liberty of looking into some of those uh, periods you know let's say the 30 minutes prior to market going into settlement you could just see it going one way one way one way all the time just unwinding of risk and no other side to be found there just a one-way street it's only the bit the bit the bit and um I found that very interesting. So those markets are still uh very volatile. The the micro market structure is not what it used to be, and it also tells me that this is a time when you as a trader you want to be careful. You do not want to be caught with too large a position in those markets.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there's so many there's so many interesting things going on right now, and of course, one of them one of the strategies that have become so popular among investors uh, is, of course, the risk parity uh, trade, which, uh, you know, for many years just looked like it was like printing money. Uh, it'd just be long stocks and long bonds with with leverage uh, and maybe even long some gold and some other stuff. And as you rightly say, a lot of that is now being unwound uh, at, at high speed. But in general, you know, what happens with a strategy like this that relies on, essentially negative correlation between equities and bonds, Now we're, which has been the case for the last you know, 10, 20 years maybe, that for the most part the correlation uh, has been negative on a daily basis. But, and we've mentioned this before on the podcast, and that is if people go back and they study history, they will realize that actually the negative correlation only happens 30% of the time in the long run. So what if we're now going back to a period of time where Equities will be under pressure and fixed income will be under pressure because, one, we're at zero. Essentially, we, you know, the U.S. had negative interest rates on three and six months during this week. You know, so even though they talk about, oh, we're never going to have negative interest rates in the U.S., well, effectively, you have that already. And you've got very low yields on the 10 and the 30 years. So, you know, how much more can you squeeze out of that Um so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I worry about some of these uh, things where strategies that have so much assets following them um, will um, yeah, will have to continue to to uh, reduce and 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 um, you know put put even more pressure on those two uh, asset classes together, which of course is probably the ver- the worst scenario for for pension funds and and other uh, investors like that who, uh, have um, both asset classes um to a very large degree so um yeah interesting stuff. and i agree i mean i heard the numbers you heard as well i mean big down de- numbers from some of these biggest quant firms in in the world uh which is um uh which is very interesting right that that um uh, things that you thought was on you know invincible uh is, uh, and I think you have a great quote, actually, from Jerry that you uh, wanted to share that kind of goes to that a little bit about, you know, these very complex type strategies. Can you remind me of that?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to read that out. Um, this is something that Jerry posted this week on, on Twitter. I'm not sure who's the owner of the quote, but I liked it nevertheless. It goes like this. If March 2020 has taught me anything, it is that simple is the most robust And actually the most complex. Simplicity means you understand the complexity of all these AI and ML philosophies and are willing to discard them and go against the crowd. So apparently he picked that up somewhere, posted it there. He finished it with thank you C period. So somebody with a C has probably posted that. And I agree with that. You know, simple is the most robust. This is what we're preaching. We're preaching to the choir. We've said this many times. And it's it's also the complexity in it because we have to understand why it is so good. It's simple but good. It's not easy to really get that.
1: Well, well we know that um, simplicity is the ultimate com- uh, um, sophistication, I think is the quote. And, um, Correct. And, and I think that, you know, and this is important, I think, because... One of the hardest things that we do, I think, as managers, is that we, first of all, we operate in this non-linear world where so many things impact what we do. But the hardest thing our research teams are doing is to try and take all of that and and then put it into simple rules or relatively simple rules or frameworks because that's the only way we uh, feel comfortable that this will continue to work. And I think what's interesting about it, I mean, if you take the 87 crash, if you take the tech bubble, if you take the um, financial crisis, and if you take now the coronavirus, um, which are four big, but very different types of crises. at least if I look on our side, because we've been trading through all of those four crises, so far, touch on wood, we've made money in all of those four crises. Differently, of course, not the same way, and and so it is it is interesting that something again, relatively simple as trend following, let's not make it too simple, but relatively simple as trend following, has the ability to cope with very complex, surprising, rapid um you know type of black swan events. Um yet and and this is the other point of that quote, which I also like a lot which I think will be the other interesting thing to see in a few days when the numbers start to come out, and that is what are these alternative data, what are these machine learning strategies, AI, whatever they're called, who have become popular because people thought that, oh, that's so complex, it must be really good, Um, how did they cope with this? That, that to me, is going to be interesting. They may have done brilliantly, it's not my expectation, But they could have and and good for them. But if not, then I think a lot of investors need to go back and rethink and ask themselves the question as to why are you shying away from trend following that has been around for 50 years and has proven to work during these periods.
2: That's right. Look, no machine has had the chance to learn machine learning no machine has had the chance to learn what has just happened in the markets it's like what we're saying all the time every time it's different every time it's a different type of surprise history rhymes but it never repeats exactly in the same way so what we have just seen has not been part of the data set and a machine has not been therefore able to study it right so I question how effective a machine learning AI type algorithm can really be in the market environment unfolding as it did in the
1: past 3 to 4 weeks and and this is this is actually exactly um, the the issue because we also look at the historical data but we don't let the, the machines come up with the algo this is the difference right none of us have in, have this data in our data set um, and 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 so uh, you're yeah I mean you're right it'll be but, but interesting right, to exactly see exactly
2: right but we're using this very very broad brush yeah right, when we look at that data which kind of like therefore takes into account that every time it's different you know yeah. the details are always different the bigger picture kind of like rhymes that's what we're picking up but we cannot design or i don't think i will ever like the idea of designing something that learns the particularities of you know the, this very noisy market and, and and then becomes this intelligent machine about it i i, I don't get that nope. like i say i may be i'm definitely not smart enough i may be wrong on this and maybe in 10 years time everybody's doing it but right now i uh, i stand on the other side of that
1: Sure, and and actually, what makes it even more interesting uh, is that this is the first crisis we've had since the rise of the AI and machine learning technology. So this 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 will be um, uh, a very educational, if nothing else, um, you know, process to go through and really analyze what what worked and what didn't work. So, anyways, yeah. what else have you got on your uh, on your side?
2: One of the things I'd like to mention is, um, and, and I'm coming back to the risk management side of things. And um, look, we're we're using mechanical trading systems, we're quants, we're systematic traders. At the same time, that means we're discretionary traders, because we design our systems, we decide when to change them, we evolve them over time, right? But once we've made those decisions, we follow the systems. One of the things that I've picked up this week and last, I cannot mention the name of the firm, but it is a very um, well-regarded quantitative investment firm, systematic trading firm with a long track record, um, in good standing with very good numbers. And um, they've done two things. Um, First thing they did is I got an email saying that they have reduced the number of markets that they're trading in their portfolio right now because they have observed uh, less liquidity, a more you know fracture, you know markets not working, the micro market structure not working as it used to, larger bid offer spreads, etc. And they were concerned that not only the liquidity is no longer there, but you know we've heard that ABN AMRO Clearing has uh, suffered a 200 million loss because a prop trading firm wasn't able to. Uh, uh, make a margin call. Um, maybe there's a risk of markets being forced into closure, and then you don't want to have any big positions on anyway. Or exchanges failing, houses failing. They, they have reduced the markets and they've stopped trading at first in everything that is not like super liquid and not on CME or Eurex and, you know, CBOT or something like that. That was the first thing. And then a couple of days later, I get an email. And they said, the portfolio is now flat, they have stopped trading. They have not stopped trading because they have suffered losses. They're essentially at an all-time high, right? They have stopped trading, so it's like, you know, no more positions, no more trading going on for the time being in the current market environment with that level of volatility and that level of illiquidity. Uh, They will put the positions back on and, you know, continue resume trading uh, when the market environment has changed. But for now, nothing happens. So, this is a super discretionary input into your um, trading style, into risk management, into everything. It is a discretionary decision in an otherwise systematic investment process.
1: You know, when I hear something like that, um, what comes to mind, what springs to mind when I hear something like that is that, um, as you say, It's a complete discretionary decision. It's not in their backtest or results previously. But more importantly, what if you're a client who bought them because you expect them to make money, which is probably what they've shown and said in the past. We can make money when, you know, something like this happens. But then they stop trading. So they can't make money. Of course, they're not going to lose money, but they can't make money for, for, for that. So they are not that quote-unquote crisis alpha that these short-term guys tend to promote themselves as. So I think that's a dangerous decision to make, um, frankly, uh, you know. Um, so, But in- interesting stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is what happens. By the way, scientifically speaking, when When you're under stress, your eQ apparently drops by thirteen percent. so when we when we need this is something I picked up from from Daniel crosby uh, in uh, when I interviewed him for for uh, for the podcast uh, on behavioral finance. Apparently, studies show that we lose thirteen percent of our i q when when we're under stress. so when when we need it the most, we actually have less i q. So that's interesting. but but this is the point. I mean, you know, these things, um, these these periods causes stress on, on many levels. Um, so, yeah, this that's pretty radical in my opinion. And I'm sure there are many more firms like that making those kind of decisions.
2: Yeah, very, very radical decision. I agree. And um, like you say, I mean, yeah, they're cautious. They don't want to be caught wrong-footed if uh, markets are closed. Um, I think that concern is... You know it's fine you can be concerned about market closures markets have been closed before um, they've been closed after 9/11 uh, not for long but for a couple of days um, they've been closed uh, uh, for long periods of time during the periods of uh, you know Wars world wars and the Great Depression and you know those type of faces um, but yeah I mean you're right Niels I think um, investors buy them because they expect them to perform well during periods like that and um, uh, I want them to be cautious and not, you know, be caught wrong-footed in liquid markets. At the same point, at the same time, I'd like them to continue trading.
1: Yeah, but you bring that—that that actually reminds me of another point um, that uh, that we often talk about, and that is, some firms, and you know, we don't need to mention any names here, but some firms have chosen a strategy, as a business, to become asset gatherers, right? and um and, and and in a situation like this where clearly liquidity is not necessarily as good as it normally is being too big presents different problems right in this case it presents a problem where the firm decides to stop trading because essentially they are too big now that that is clear their systems cannot cope with the level of liquidity we have right now um And so that's another thing, in my opinion, that's another uh, way of saying, well, we're too big for the markets we trade. And that, to me, and we know also that alternative data, right, where you go into less liquid markets because they might be trending better. Well, they might. But in a situation like this, where you need liquidity, you may not have it. So that's the danger. And this is what people have to, when they look at a manager, they have to take these things into consideration. It's not just about the numbers, it's also about what how sustainable is the strategy going in you know going through really difficult times, where, frankly, certainly we know that for for our industry as a whole. I mean, people look to us for good and for bad to make money during crisis. I mean, that's where the crisis alpha term came from. I'm not a subscriber to that, but, but because I think a crisis, you know, is now being anything is a crisis, right? But this really is a crisis. We can't deny that. So people are relying on our part of the of their portfolio to deliver something. But if we are all stop trading because we're too big and markets are not liquid enough and all of that, what's the point? And so. I hope I hope that will also be part of the discussion uh, among investors. Just you know, look at what you've got, and um, we even know from, of course, this has been published. Uh, so so much, I don't even want need to. I think mention the name, but there were certain managers who ditched trend following because okay, it hadn't done so well, and it's not going to go do great in the future. Let me do more in the equity side, right? But today we realize well, maybe that's not necessarily how you best avoid having a difficult time in a crisis you need to be where there's liquidity you need to be where you're not trying to trade seven thousand stocks up or down because you may not actually be able to do that through the difficult time even though this crisis is different from different from the 87 crisis it didn't happen in one day no sure but it's certainly been a volatile uh experience yeah you're absolutely right
2: That's the state of play this week. Um, do we have some interesting <laughs> questions?
1: We have questions. so apologies to uh, Francois Michael and James uh, for not getting to your questions sooner, but we had uh, some really good guests by the way. if you you know if I can suggest anyone who misses who missed the last two weeks, um one with Robert Carver, the other one with Eric Crittenden last week, I mean I thought personally these were really great conversations. They're so smart and they're so. Uh, yeah, interesting to uh, to listen to. So, uh, if you missed it, go back and listen to those two episodes. So, that is why we haven't taken any questions uh, in the recent week. So, we're going to try and make good on that uh, now. So, let me try and, and pull up uh, the first question from Francois. Um, uh, and I can't... Uh, let me see here. Hope all is well. I am taking some time off to write this email as... Staring at these wild moves on my screen can be draining and not necessarily productive. Was wondering if you guys could share how you handled the oil move last Monday. That would be great. So, okay, so to frame this, this would be a question from the week before we had the big drop in oil of 30% going into Monday morning. So over the weekend with um, the Saudis and the Russians uh, having a bit of a price war. Um, I think that's the that's the question, Francois is, is asking here.
2: Oh, we handled it very well <laughs> because we've been on the right side of that trade. I mean, uh, it doesn't happen so often that we're you know uh, getting gaps of this magnitude, and uh, you know we we had a short position on, I think you know from the fifty five level or something like that, and uh, and so yeah, I mean I was um, when I saw that. It was uh, people were starting to talk about it on the Sunday night. I picked it up on Twitter, and they were, you know, estimating that the market would be opening at around the thirty level or something like that. And I was like, wow, probably that's not going to be true. It's probably more like you know thirty-seven or something like that. It's going to be a little bit down, right? But boom, there you go. It was down, you know, even below thirty or something like that. Then it came back up. So, look. Um, Great trade, all the energy markets, all the other energy markets uh, followed suit. Uh, we were short, so made a lot of money uh, on that day.
1: Yeah, so like you, we were also on the right side of the trade. Not massively, right? But energies had been going down for a little bit. So so uh, longs had been exited and small shorts had been, had been entered. And uh, so, you know, you could say in this situation, yeah, we were... Uh, on the right side it doesn't always happen like that i remember back in may of last year let's not forget that most people including us we were on the wrong side of uh, i think it was the Hawks. actually they went up by 75 percent in a month and uh, so you know so sometimes you are quote unquote lucky to be on the right side of the move especially if this if it's these kind of um gap moves that they're really hard to deal with i mean it is there's going to be a big degree of luck, uh, you know, in it, so uh, let's not um, kid ourselves, but we were on the right side of that, and and because we have, you know, um, a different framework of managing risk to, uh, to Moritz, for example, um, when we see a big move like that down, that actually forces us to buy a little bit of our short position back to main sh- make sure that our risk is within our overall risk budget. Um, so it's not like we just stick with the positions that we have all the time. And, and so we, we manage the, the exposure, uh, dynamically, um, during those trades. But yeah, a good question, Francois. And, and I think most trend followers, you know, would have made money from, from energies, uh, and that moved down. That's, that's for sure. Um, but it doesn't always, uh, happen like that. Michael has a Mike has a question um he says first of all thanks so much for producing the, this podcast it has been very helpful to me i have a two part question first for futures that have some degree of capacity constraint how do you take that into account when it comes to position sizing <clears throat> and secondly still related to capacity constrained futures a product has exhibited strong long term trends uh, you would assume that the majority of the CTA trend-following industry has similar a similar position on. Would that impact your position sizing? I'm thinking of this specifically within the context of Palladium. So this might be for you, Moritz, which, of course, has been a trend-follower's delight over the past couple of years. Thanks for taking my question. Of course, Mike. So, Palladium, um, from a p- practitioner's point of view, Moritz...
2: What say you? I like the contract. It's a big contract. Uh, I no longer have a long position. I used to have a long position um, up until, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. And then it had a massive move down uh, really fast. Can you
1: frame the numbers? Because you might remember but how how high it went and how low it went. Can you frame that Uh, just for people who may not follow Palladium? It makes it a little bit more interesting, I think, if they get a feel for... Um, otherwise, I can pick it up on my screen if if you don't have it uh, so, available. Yeah,
2: no, I, I I have it. So palladium moved all the way to two thousand seven hundred, and this was around the end of February, so just around just before we started to have the massive sell-offs uh, in the equity markets, and then from that level, it moved all the way down to one thousand four hundred. So it lost close to fifty percent in a matter of two to three weeks. Right, so it. This is what we've seen in the past three to four weeks. Everything has been selling off, regardless of kind of like what it was, whether that's you know gold or equities or bonds or just everything, and uh, energies. Um, so obviously, I got stopped out of that long position, and uh, uh, so now it's it has returned back. It's now at uh, two thousand two hundred. Uh, it's the ultimate whipsaw, of course, right? Uh, but that is what it is. What can you do? Um, I you know, whether there's been a lot of trend followers in that market, yeah, sure. I think you know trend following traders happen in that market. But uh, the question is, are those traders the majority, or are there other traders in those markets? And I still think, even in the case of Palladium, which isn't the most liquid of the metal markets, that's for sure. Um, the trend following crowd. Is not what is not. It's not the driving factor uh, for that market. It's uh, uh, we've heard that you know the palladium physical market has been characterized by a shortage. Uh, the production hasn't been as high as it, as it uh, would have to be. So, you know, prices have to move up. That is what happened.
1: There's a couple of things that uh, springs to my mind when I see that. First of all, I would just say that uh, you know, if you were a trend follower trading palladium, you would have been long for months, right? I mean, we don't create yes. the trends; we just participate in in those trends. So, so I, you maybe you while while I'm talking, Moritz, you can just for fun look up when you actually got long uh, palladium originally. I would have thought yep. back in October or something like. That. I don't know. We'll see. But. But what I do want to say about this, because obviously as you say, it it trades down by more than 50% in a short period of time and then it trades up by more than 50% in an even shorter period of time. So, I mean, what I will say about these things is that this is why I actually think that exits are really, really important when you design your systems and where it can really set you apart because one of the consequences in my view of suddenly everyone offering these smart beta uh, or factor uh, products where they say oh yeah trend following we can do that that's so easy that you don't almost don't have to pay for us it's so easy right that's what they say that's their pitch um we know that it's not that easy and but i do think that because so much money has flown into these low fee flat fee products uh, where my guess is that they're using some relatively simple but probably very similar type strategies um, that that does mean, I think, from time to time that everyone is going to run for the exit at the same time. And that's partly why you see, uh, certainly in a market that is not in itself super liquid, moves like that, which is kind of crazy. I mean, I know down 50% sounds like a lot. Let's not forget that the DAX index went down by 40%. So it's not like it's completely... Uh, you know out of the ordinary uh, in this period uh, so even liquid market, really liquid markets have had massive moves but but I do think it it does illustrate uh, the importance uh frankly uh, of finding managers one with the experience and people who are not offering their products uh, for free because it's so easy it's not if anyone tells you it is don't believe them that 's all I can say. So to
2: answer your question, um, I got long in the week of 9th November uh, 2018. That's the last time I got long Palladium. And (laughs) just prior to that, I got stopped out of long position. I uh, had a flat position for uh, a couple of months, but I've also been long between 2016 all the way through 2017 into the early parts of 2018 and then I got stopped out of that long. And just to put that in perspective, from you know when I initiated my long position, it was around the one thousand level for palladium, right? So I rode it up all the way to two thousand and seven hundred, uh, got stopped out of you know around the I don't know two thousand mark or something like that. Still a good trade. Yeah, I mean I, I had more open trade equity on a couple of weeks ago, um, gave that back, but I didn't give all of it back. It's still been a hell of a ride. Very nice trend. So. I'm not complaining about that that market at all. It has sold off. Yeah, it's uh, it's whipsawing. I, I may have to get back back in. So that's what we do. Um, don't think too much about yeah. it. And and also the other question I think which Mike had was about the. Uh, liquidity of the markets. And I just wanted to um, to snap that up again because we got a question. I'm not sure if you saw that, Niels from our friend Seth, who's kind of like asking the same question. He has noticed decreased liquidity uh, in some of the contracts and he found it difficult to roll them even., uh, he's mentioning mm. the CME butter contract, which obviously is a smaller contract. Um, and apparently that has been very liquid. I personally don't trade it, so I don't know about that particular market. Um, but his question is, when do you decide to stop trading if a market has become too illiquid? And it's kind of like the same question, or it relates to the question that Mike has, which is, um, how do we look at the liquidity? And you know, when you have to, um, you have to backtest your system, and you know, with your account trading level or the notional trading level that you think you want to be trading, and then see what contract sizes you come up with in that in that backtest and have then built a relation this is how i do it to the open interest of that market and see how many contracts are you as a trader in a market vis-a-vis the overall market and you know you need to find your level but let me say this, I mean, I don't want to be larger than, and I definitely am not larger than, you know, 1% of any market. Try to be smaller than that, right? And and if you're not a, a, a super uh, large trader, you'll find it very difficult to be more than 1% of the open interest on, you know, the markets that, that you know, trade. Of course, if you go into markets such as uh, butter and lumber and, you know, other smaller markets, uh, it, it can happen. So just, you know, uh, take that into consideration. If your account size becomes larger or you trade at a higher vol, you want to take bigger position sizes, then maybe at some point uh, those markets are not the ones you want to be trading any longer because, um, but office threats become too wide, it's difficult to roll them, your market impact is too great and then you have to drop them.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely a great answer to, uh, to that. Uh, I would I would add to this that this is why that you know you have to re I mean you have to stick with liquid in my opinion, you have to stick with liquid markets because quote unquote smaller markets can be deceiving. They can they can seem liquid most of the time. But when you need the liquidity the most it's not there. That's what I don't like about them. So as Moritz says you know, make sure you're not too much of an open interest, but that's even in itself, I think, not necessarily enough. I think you also need to have limit on how much of the daily volume can you be in terms of your own positions, and that should also be a low number because you want to always be able to trade the markets you trade. We test what we trade and we trade what we test, and and so, you know, you have to be able to do that. Otherwise, you just have to accept... That your AUM is too high, and if you um, then want to um, limit the exposure to that particular market, so you can continue to grow your AUM, okay, that's fine. It's going to have an impact, of course, but but it's so important to um, focus on liquidity. So I hope. So uh, just to answer your second question more specifically, Mike, um, that's exactly how kind of you 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 don't have to specifically look at a market saying, oh, I think there's a lot of trend followers here, so I'm going to reduce my position size. I think you have to find another way of doing it. And one way of doing it is, as Moritz says, look at open interest, but also look at daily volume and make sure your own trading, your own size um, is small. Um, And this is, of course, why uh, commodities are often um, discarded by managers who become too big because... The, those numbers are not necessarily big and so you can't be a 10 or 15 or 20 billion dollar manager and trade these markets, uh, that doesn't work.
2: Very good point, Niels, on the daily volume. I didn't bring this up and I think it is, like you say, focus on the liquid markets because um, during corrections or crises as we have them right now, that liquidity tends to disappear and the volume is now much smaller. And I'm just looking up the markets in question here. So, butter... Uh, it used to be like in January, before we had the correction, it, it traded about, you know, 60 contracts a day. So that's not really that much, right? But if you want to trade one contract, okay, fine. But the last couple of weeks, uh, it's trading six contracts, two contracts, four contracts, two contracts. If you have one contract, you're half of the market, right? And the same is true, for instance, for, you know, contract that is milk. You know, used to trade between 100 and 300 lots a day uh, in, in, in January. It's now three, one, two lots. And this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, zero volume, zero. So that's I the problem. You may yeah. then be caught in those markets. And if you need to get out or if you want to get in or you need to roll a position, then that is, is not a good situation you may be able to get it done and find the other side. But at what cost?
1: When I hear numbers like that, Moritz, I mean, all I can say is, and I know some of the people we know well um, from our live event are listening to what we're saying. And, And all I can say is, yes, I'm aware that some of you guys trade these markets, but all I can say when you hear something like this and you see something like that, get out, don't trade them again, because again, it is deceiving when you see the data and you say, oh yeah, that's a great market to trade, it trends a lot, I can make a lot of money, I've done my back test." Yeah, the problem is you can't trade it when you need it. And um, I don't know actually, Moritz, if you can't get out, say, on a roll and you're long, I think you're taking physical delivery of some of these markets, right?
2: Well, not not every market is physically delivered, sure. right? Some of some of them yeah. are, are cash settled, and uh, if you if you did roll the cash settled market, it goes into expiry last trade, then you know it, it settles in cash. Um, but obviously, the the physically settled markets, um, you know, they have a first notice date when you know the the, the holder of a short position can give notice to the clearinghouse with the intent to deliver to the holder of a long position. And then there are certain rules, there's a methodology that the clearing house applies as to who gets delivered. It's normally who has the contract open for the longest period of time. And uh, you definitely don't want to be in that position. you know. And most FCMs and Clearing firms, they will send reminders uh, out to the clients and, and, and force them to either close the position or roll it to another month. Um, if uh, they can. If they can, exactly right. Um, so yeah, don't i mean, if if you're if you're running a smaller account, and I'm not saying this is wrong, you can get a lot of diversification for markets such as butter or lumber or milk, right? No doubt about it. if uh, if you find that your system trades a lot or two, all right, maybe look at them. But be aware that the liquidity in those markets can't be disappearing,
1: yeah. I mean, trading one lot. But with no volume every day, it doesn't, yeah. Anyways, let's not dwell with that. I think James, who's also a question we had kind of postponed a bit, uh, James, sorry about that, um, he writes, and this is uh, probably from, actually, it's from a week ago, the question came in. Um, gosh, another week, another chapter. I was hearing this week that the futures front order book had dropped in terms of liquidity depth from approximately $1 billion to 9 million. I was wondering if you guys could discuss the practical implementations dealing with gap down risk, et cetera, et cetera. I think, James, to a large degree, that's exactly what we have just done re, you know, in the last couple of questions. So, But I wanted to acknowledge uh, you for sending in the question. By the way, anyone can send a question to us uh, to info at toptradersonplug.com and we do our best to to answer them. Um, But I think we've kind of talked about um, the challenges and and the fact that when these things happen, um, the quote-unquote expected liquidity won't be there. And you need to factor that in. You definitely, I mean, having done this for 45 years as a firm, I mean, this is not the first time we've seen this. And that is why we build the systems the way we do it, so that we don't end up in a situation where, you know, where we can't, um, you know, essentially prudently manage our our positions um, and therefore we would never trade some things like butter or milk or anything like that. Um, uh, yeah, so, but good question. Thanks very much for that. Then we have Dave. Uh, Dave is sending a question, question for the panel. How do you all approach the topic of adding open trade equity to the notional account value for calculating new positions? An example would be if the notional value of the account start at 100k on January 1 and a few months down the road, there there are 50k in profits in the account. When do you add this OTE, Open Trade Equity, to the account value? So let me start with you, um, Moritz. Um, How do you do it? That is a very good question. Um, different ways of doing
2: it. You can, you know, be a more drive a more conservative approach and disregard the open trade equity and size new positions uh, based on your closed trade equity. That's one way of doing it. That would be a more conservative position size as opposed to. You... But
1: would it be more conservative if you had uh, negative? Open oh no, trade so equity? It,
2: it, with negative, you're absolutely right. With negative open trade equity, then then not. But let's say, I think most people go like, okay, I have some positive open trade equity. Do I want to risk that with new positions, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, if, if you have negative open trade equity and you take that into consideration, that reduces smaller position sizes. Um, the way I do it is uh, is uh, is neither of those two. I use a notional account value for my uh, account and I keep that constant for a fairly long time. What that allows me to do um, say you know it's I don't know ten million just to make a number up. Um, every time I you know show up at that blackjack table of markets, I bet ten million. Here's position sizes for ten million, for ten million, for ten million, all the time. All right. Uh, obviously, I would have to change something if I were in a massive drawdown. If my account had a five percent drawdown, then I wouldn't be trading it uh, with that same size. Um, and then I kind of like have an end of year review process and go like, okay. Um, say I've made 10% in that year, then uh, my account size goes up by you know maybe 10%, maybe a bit less.
1: Yeah. On our side, we do it completely differently. We recognize everything every single day. We adjust accordingly. So what we trade is exactly what our clients' assets are worth uh, every single day. So different approach, but as Marit says, there are different ways to, um, to skin a cat, so to speak. So, um, yeah. And I know, for example, that Jerry has often talked about that he does it in a completely different way to, uh, to both uh, Moritz and, and what we do. So, uh, yeah, I guess you have to pick what you feel uh, most, um, that you feel best about, so to speak. Um, but I think when you run client money, though, I will say that since you also have to recognize additions, withdrawals, et cetera, et cetera, um, I don't know. I think personally, um, you could either do it you know, every month Keep it stable for a month because intra-month usually nothing happens in terms of flows. Um, but I would recognize it at the end of a month at at, at the minute as a minimum. But uh, as I said on our side, we actually do it every single day. The last question today, um, I wanted to bring up because I think actually think this is really important, but maybe not for the reasons why um, you might expect. But let me go with this, and then. Um, I'm happy to go first on this one, Moritz, um, then you can think about your response. So this question is from Dante. Um, He writes, Hey, I've been really loving the podcast, especially the short bite-sized episodes. Yeah, so maybe you've noticed in March, we tried a little experiment by giving you some uh, small um, um, pieces of... uh, Previous episodes on a daily basis, at least during the week. Um, so, if you like those, uh, let us know. Maybe we do. We continue doing that. Um, so, um, so I hope you've been uh, more, you know, enjoying that as well. Anyway, I decided to dedicate fifty percent of my portfolio to trend following, about three thousand dollars. If I identify a potential trade, how much do I allocate to the trade? Let's say I only find one, two trades that passed my system. Do I only put about 5% of the 3K in each trade or can I have one or two trades but most of the 3K is in those few trades? Hope that makes sense. So I want to bring up an important point on this, Dante. Um, and this comes down to trend following in general. Um, there's no doubt that right now, I think there'll be a lot of um, information put out uh, by various People, uh, firms that offer trend-following strategy signals, uh, whatever it might be, um, and where they will say, "Oh, look at this trade! How it you know made you tons of money because you got short in the S and P and all of that stuff, whatever it might be." And so, um, the concept of of kind of picking and choosing signals and making trend-following uh, based on that. Um, is probably something some people will unfortunately um, end up doing. But it's not the way I think, and I'm sure it's the same with Morris, it's not the way we think about trend following. We really... Part of the secret of trend following, why it works over time, is the fact that you have lots of position on at any one time. um, Because you never know where the trends are going to be. And so... I understand the capacity constraint you have with your account size, so I'm recognizing that. Um, but I'm worried. I'm worried f- the way you phrase the question that you will kind of pick one or two trades and think that you're doing trend following. I don't think you are. I think you're I think you' are opportunistically picking trades based on certain rules. But to me, it's not really how trend-following as a philosophy, uh, is done. I hope that makes some sense uh, and and that you can distinguish the difference. Now, if you're saying to me, okay, I've got $3,000 and I want to allocate, you know, 5% risk to a single trade, okay, still a high number, 5% to one trade is still a big allocation of risk. Um, we wouldn't go nearly that high i mean if we risk 50 basis points even though we don't do it exactly that way but let's just say 50 basis points or 25 basis points i mean that's kind of how the you know i think most bigger managers think about risk per per opportunity or per market so 5% would be a healthy um and you don't have to have many you know losing trades in a row and your account is wiped out and that's what i'm worried about when when i hear your question and certainly only picking one or two trades is, I think, frankly, and I want to say it in the nicest possible way because I think you're, you're well-meaning in what you're trying to do, but I think this is more gambling. It's really like putting uh, you know, your money on red or black. It, it really, you know, there's no way of knowing, and, and this is really also important to say, most of the signals we get in trend following are four signals. We're losing money on those. So if you're only picking two, I mean those two could be for all I care, they could be losing trades and you have nothing left in your account. And and therefore you 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 can't approach trend following that like that. You know, I understand the situation and it's difficult. Um but I just wanted to make sure that I made it clear that what you're suggesting, although I'm sure it's a well meaning and you're trying to do what we have talked about uh, on the podcast, it's not, in my opinion, the right way to do. Then I would rather take your $3,000 and buy a mutual fund, a trend-following mutual fund, and and hopefully earn 5%, 10% return on a yearly basis, even though the expenses will be a little bit higher, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because it's a retail product. But But the other thing can't be really compared to trend-following. It would be picking random trades based on certain rules, of course, but still the odds of of making money is like flipping a coin. I agree with what that. What say you, more No,
2: I I think you've uh, summarized it and answered it really well, Niels. Um With uh, the, the best and probably, I don't want to say the best, but a better decision is to buy a trend-following mutual fund and get the diversification on you know, a smaller amount of capital
1: that way. Um, those were the questions, Moritz. Are there any other kind of topics that you... Um, obviously, we've got the performance, we can quickly go through as well, but is there any other topics that um, we haven't brought up that we were thinking we would talk about today? No. Uh,
2: looking at my notes here, it's. Uh, I think we've covered it. Um, and... Um, Great questions this week. We had a bit yeah, of catch-up to do. Um, yeah. And um, no, I think we're good.
1: Okay, so from a performance point of view, obviously, again, these are the indices, so there will be a very big dispersion, I think, between single managers. Um, but from an industry point of view, the top 50 index, which is the 20 largest CTAs, open to new investors, is down about 1.93% as of Thursday night. Down about 3% for the year. I do think yesterday, Friday, generally was a positive day for, for CTAs, though, so I will add that. The SoCGen CTA index, again a broad index, is down about half a percent in March, down 1.16% for the year. Now, the SoCGen Trend Index, which is where we would be more uh, aligned, uh, is up 1.03% for the month, up 1.5% for the year. The shock, uh, sorry, the shock, the Sock Gen Trend uh, short-term traders index uh, is up 0.93% for the month and up almost 4% for the year. So they're having a good year and with lots of volatility, that's kind of what you would expect. And then the bridge alternative index, uh, which is a few managers um, that has flat fees, it's up about 3.5% this month, up 2.8% for the year. Now, if... You want some safe reading in a scary time. Uh, let me mention that uh, I recently released a new version of the ultimate guide to the best investment books of all time. So you can grab that uh, on the website, the top toptradersonplug.com website, and you can get started on that. I will say, though, that at the moment, um, the website is a bit slow. I'm aware of it. Um, I I don't know if it has something to do with reduced internet uh, in Switzerland or around the world or whether it's just more users since everyone is at home. Um, Some watching Netflix, I hope my kids are doing it for online learning, frankly. But anyways, could be the reason. We are working on it, but just be a little bit patient. Even if it takes 30 seconds to load, um, then you know it should still load for you. And by the way, another thing that I don't talk about much on the podcast is that on that website, you can find something called the daily trend barometer and also the daily market score. And they will actually show you not necessarily how Moritz or we, uh, you know, think about the signal strength in a market. Um, it's based on other methodologies, but it's, you know, it's certainly directionally in the right uh, way, I would say, and, um, and I think probably quite useful uh, as a resource uh, at the moment, um, but before also I leave, um, you know, uh, you uh, this uh, time around, I just want to say that that Morris and I we don't take your attention for granted, uh, and and this journey that we're on is is solely because of you gifting uh, us your time and attention. So uh, we have a lot of love and appreciation for everyone out there who. Uh, you know, took a chance on the show and who have become uh, an important part of this audience. Uh, It means so much to us, and it's really your energy, your enthusiasm and engagement with what we do that that keeps us going. As I'm sure a lot of you have noticed, Jerry hasn't been on for a few weeks. We hope he'll be back, um, uh, you know, in the not-too-distant future, but he's taking a little bit of a break from from all this busy, uh, you know, podcasting and social... Um, but, uh, yeah, so that is that is the reason. We'll, we'll actually also, because we've got uh, quite a few guests coming on in the next few weeks, so there's usually still going to be three of us uh, talking with uh, different perspectives. But sometimes, from time to time, it'll just be Moritz and me. I think on that note, uh, Moritz, let's wrap up this conversation, which we hope you enjoyed. Uh, Make sure you keep your questions coming to us. You can email them to info at toptradersonplot.com and we'll do our best to answer them as soon as we can. And of course, you can also follow Moritz and me uh, on Twitter where we from time to time actually manage to post some brilliant uh, information. Not always, but from time to time. From Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and
0: we look forward to being back with you next week.